Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Kirk Megu. I'm also the public relations officer of the United National Congress, the official opposition party in the Republic of Trinidad and Tobago, and a former lecturer at the University of the West Indies in Jamaica and in Trinidad. Today, my guest is Abdullahi Ahmed An Naim, author of the book Decolonizing Human Rights, published by Cambridge University Press in 2021. Welcome, Abdullahi. Thank you. Thank you, Kirk. Ah, well, it's a pleasure to have you here. Well, let's just start off right away. Uh, can you tell us what your book is about? Yes. Uh, maybe a, a little bit about myself, if you please. Sure. Uh, I'm from Sudan. I was born in 1946. Uh, I started being a human rights activist in Sudan in the 1960s, when I was a law student at the University of Khartoum. And throughout, I have been also part of a movement, an Islamic reform movement. I joined in 1968, and I am still a member, although the movement has been suppressed in Sudan. Uh, I say this because it is critical that I say that I am an activist all my life. I have been a victim of human rights violations in Sudan, and people who I care for deeply are also, most Sudanese have been victims. I have also been the director of Africa Watch, which is the Human Rights Division of Human Rights Watch. Now it came to be. But when I joined, when I was director, it was called Africa Watch in the 1990s, early 1990s. And, and what was that years. organization based? I, it was based in uh, the Africa Watch was based in Washington D.C., but it was part of Human Rights Watch, which was based in New York City. Right. And now, Africa it's called the Africa Division of Human Rights Watch, which is based in New York City. So I have been inside the international human rights advocacy system, and I speak also from that experience. Uh, but the purpose of my book is, in fact, to uphold the efficacy of human rights as a universal value, not as a simply liberal or Islamist or whatever. So to be human rights, they have to be universal. If you are talking about relative anything, it is not human rights we are talking about. So the, the notion of a liberal notion of human rights is an incoherent contradiction. By being liberal, it is no longer universal. It is a culturally specific, it's a culturally relativist uh, notion of human rights. To be universal, it has to be the, the contribution of the total human population globally with their values, with their cultures, with their um, geopolitical situations, all of that is part of the package. We cannot just simply have a neatly defined notion 
of human rights that's academically debated in lecture halls, uh, whereas people on the ground do not relate to that. So my purpose, therefore, is to uphold the universality of human rights against all relativisms, liberal and otherwise. This is this is very fascinating philosophically. Um, it's it both philosophically uh, fascinating and organizationally, you know, uh, and, and I suppose, and, and from your personal history. So, it, it uh, you know, I look forward to perhaps um, having a longer discussion than I anticipated because, I mean, let, let's start off um, with your history in the 60s there. And um, so in terms of your activism with regard to human rights, what was your relationship to uh, Islamic movements? Would you have considered yourself a liberal in the 1960s and pushing for liberal reforms? Or, or, is it, or would you have conceived of yourself in another way? Uh, yes, actually, I started very much in the liberal uh, perspective. Uh, and throughout, initially, I, I can, if I may briefly, I started actually being critical of Sharia. Right. From a liberal human rights perspective. Mm -hmm. uh, the idea of equality for women, non Muslims, freedom of religion, freedom of belief. Uh, I defended those values. I published a book in 1990. It's called Toward an Islamic Reformation, which was published by Syracuse University Press here in the United States. And in that book, I was presenting a critique of Sharia from a human rights perspective, understanding human rights to be the international universal declaration and the instruments and the treaties. Then I shifted to be critical of the human rights perspective in the international system itself. Could I ask you, what yes. is there anything in particular that made you become critical of the um, liberal perspective? Was there any event? Was it, uh, or, or was it something else? Double standards. Right. That the fact that when human rights violations occur to African peoples, to people of of Asia and other neo-colonial or post sorry post-colonial societies, we do not hear or see the same outcry and outrage and activism, so-called humanitarian intervention and otherwise, that is that happens when Western imperial powers' interests are concerned. Right. So fundamentally, it is a protest uh, against double standards. Mm -hmm. And the fact that Sudan, I, I, I mentioned Sudan because Sudan has been in a state of civil war since 1955. Yeah. Continuously. Now we have a vicious civil war since April of, have, of this year. Have you and your and, and or your family uh, been involved in that civil war? Like, for instance, like, you know, we're, we're, do you come from, let's say, uh, here, here's a guess, an urban liberal wing um, in in Sudan, um, uh, you know, of reformists or, or is, is it anything like that? Like, do, do you come from yes. a, a history? Yes, of I mean, activism? if I may. Yes, of course. Uh, actually, when I was teaching at the University of Khartoum, I was part of, uh, as I said, uh, an Islamic reform movement that was persecuted and suppressed in the 1980s. Mm -hmm. I was in prison 
without charge or trial in Sudan for 19 months. Oh, oh, wow. And I, from 1983 to 1984. Okay. But in 1984, my, my, the teacher and the leader of our group was uh, put on trial and was publicly executed in January 1985. Oh. I left Sudan in April 1985. Did you leave as a refugee or um, did you... Fortunately for me, because I was an academic with connection, I was able to get visiting appointments abroad. Okay. That enabled me to stay abroad without having to claim refugee status. But if I had to, I would have done it. Mm -hmm. And the reason I was resisting also is the way refugees are treated. Yes. Uh, which talks also to the question of the double standards and hypocrisy. Mm. When Because refugees are in fact the, the, the ultimate example of victims of human rights violations because they are denied protection of their national states by virtue of their political opinion or religious opinion and so on. Yeah. And what we see is really treatment of refugees uh, below any level of uh, commitment to human rights values. Right. Uh, for me personally, I did not have to because, as I said, I was able to get positions as visiting uh, fellowships, teaching various places. And eventually, when I became a director of Africa Watch uh, in Washington, D.C., based, uh, which was part of Human Rights Watch, I was able to get residence in the United States. And eventually, I am at this point a United States citizen. Okay. You know, well, you, you know. I, d tell me. Uh, this is an aside, but as you're telling me your life story, it's it, it sort of reminds me of um, Ayana Hirsi Ali. Um, yes. Yeah. You know, I, and and I, I haven't heard from her in a long time, but you know, she she was a, a darling of the neocons for a long time mm -hmm. because she was so you know vocally adamant uh, for human rights, and she had a basically liberal. Uh, you know, I guess a liberal Western perspective because of her personal experiences, um, you know, in, I, I believe she's Sudanese, if I'm, oh no, Somali. I can't remember. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah Somali. Somali. And um, yeah, and so so I I am I am seeing parallels, like perhaps when you were more um, sort of, let's say, liberal, more firmly in the liberal camp, let me put it that way, and with human, human rights watch, it would, have, would it have been a similar story uh, with hers in, in some ways? Uh, no, I think with all due respect, I, I always maintained a commitment to Islam right. and to an Islamic African perspective, okay. which I don't feel that um, uh, my colleagues uh, yes. somewhat... Yeah, uh, she was very harsh and... Yes, yeah. uh, but I don't identify with that. Right. I am critical of Sharia, yes, mm -hmm. but I'm a committed Muslim, a so-called practicing Muslim. Yep. I, my, all my family are Muslims and we, are, we identify as Muslims. Yes. Uh, I would not identify personally as a purely liberal. Uh, these terms are problematic, as you know. Yeah. Uh, there is such a wide variety and shades of liberalism too. Correct. Uh, and we tend to think of Western Europe as liberal, United States, North America as liberal. But we know that there are not only history, but recent and current 
politics and, and ideologies in the United States, for example, which are extremely illiberal. Correct. You know, I, I uh, even when you... therefore I, I would not identify as liberal. I, I but I am a Muslim. Yes. I am a human rights activist. And I do not see any contradictions in that. Yes, and and I definitely want to to explore that. But but before we go there, um, you you uh, you know the the double standards you, you refer to quite correctly. Um, I, I suppose there are some liberals that um, would say, well, listen, um, you know, the West is not living up to its own values by pers- by um, engaging in these double standards, and they would like chastise the West to say, listen, you should not put power above principle or politics, et cetera, et cetera. And, and they would like, you know, stick with the liberal line and saying, you know, the, the West should, you know, uh, stick to its liberal values. But it seems to me that what you're saying is that uh, this goes beyond, uh, beyond just mere hypocrisy or not living up to ideals, that there's something inherently contradictory about a liberal notion of human rights, which is which is very uh, philosophically interesting to me. Um, and if, if I'm understanding you right, well, first of all, am I understanding you right? And if so, can you explain it further? Uh, yes, uh, because I, I think that the notion of human rights, uh, uh, basically I define it as the rights of the human by virtue of their humanity. Right. And therefore, uh, any perspective that is culturally or ideologically uh, rooted uh, is a tension with this universality of the idea. Uh, meaning that I believe that human rights should be authored by their subjects. That, that the subject of human rights should be the author of human rights. I should be the protector of human rights. Mm-hmm. Which may be something that we can touch on uh, if time permits. Meaning that um, you know, there's six, more than six billion at this point, or even seven billion human beings on this planet. Yes. Mm-hmm. How many are liberals? That's right. How many would identify as liberals? Yeah. So are we saying that liberals define human rights for everybody else? Or are we saying that liberals define human rights for themselves and everybody else define their human rights for themselves? Yeah. You know, if what, we do one that, about then we lose sight of the universality idea. Exactly. You know what? One of um, uh, one of our great intellectuals here in the Caribbean, in Trinidad and Tobago, Lloyd Best, who's who's passed on now, and was a mentor of mine. He one of the things he said, which is very similar to this, and I I like the phrase, and I think it's 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 relevant to what you're saying. He talks about the um, our own universal truths. You know that. Yes, uh, yes, 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 yes. That. Yes. Yeah. It, it, to to me, if we go back philosophically, um, it's kind of like Plato when he talks about forms and substances. Um, that you know the 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 idea of of whatever justice or or even mathematically a circle or whatever, you know, exists perfectly in the realm of of the forms of of the ideal, but then when it it gets Transfer to the plane of, uh, of of existence of substances where we are, it is imperfect, and um, so perhaps therefore it it must be it's always manifested imperfectly, and mm. and it must be uh, manifested according to 
context. Is that the kind of thing you're talking about? Uh, yes, but if I may, mm -hmm. uh, uh, there is always truth in that. But uh, let me begin by saying that to me, the only category is the human. Right. So for me, Plato is a human philosopher, not a Western philosopher. Uh -huh. And what I what I find problematic is that the notion that uh, any idea has to be fitted through or into Western liberal history or philosophical history in order to be uh, universalized. Yeah, and pe people forget that it was the Islamic world that that preserved Plato's thought for centuries. Yes, was not even known in Western Europe. I mean, yes. part of the Mediterranean world, yes, which included, you know, Egypt and Persia and and, and all all of that, which we would not consider the West today. And, yes. Yeah, and and Germany and and Sweden and England had nothing to do with um with the Mediterranean world, really. Yeah. So so it, yes. it is as much, you know. Um, connected. I completely agree. Uh, but mm. the point is clear. Clear is that he, uh, my my point is about colonialism, imperialism. Uh, it is not the West at, at large. It is it is imperialism Correct. of the West, which is not the entire West. That's right. And imperialism is the one that appropriated discourses uh, to self-produce itself globally. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why I, but I going back to Plato, I completely agree with the idea that there is always a discrepancy between theory and practice, between concept and and, and reality. But uh, which is in in my own the movement that I, I belong to, the point to emphasize is that we have to have a methodology that will keep taking us from. Uh, to, to, to narrow the gap of the discrepancy so that our, our practice, yeah, there's a verse in the Quran that says, Ya ayyuhallazina amanu, lima taquluna ma la tab'alun. Kabur makhtana inda Allahi an taquluna ma la tab'alun. Sorry to say it in Arabic like this, but the Quran should always be cited in Arabic, I think. Oh, sure. Uh, no, that's not but the, idea, the, the point is that the verse says, uh, God is speaking to human to human beings. Why do you say what you do not do? It mm -hmm. is most hateful to God that you do not do as you say. Uh, therefore, the discrepancy between theory and practice is not something that you have to accept or take for granted, but something to, have to acknowledge. But strive mm. to narrow the gap between our this course and our practice right you know it, it in a sense this um this reminds me too of of debates about democracy um and it's it's you know very much related to human rights and democracy um you know there are so many different definitions of democracy like communist countries call themselves you know democratic the people mm. democratic republic and 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 they do i mean you know, there, there is a strong argument that they do um, follow a certain trend uh, of, of thought, which is even found in the West, you know, and in, in the uh, French Revolution and so forth. J.L. Talman's book is, is very good on that. Um, uh, about, you know, uh, so the, the communist idea about democracy is that it's really for the people and representing the people and that capitalist or liberal democracy, in fact, 
um, imposes the bourgeois or rich uh, uh, control. And, and it's a facade of democracy because when you don't have economic democracy or you don't have, um, you know, basic uh, rights to material existence, what, you know, what good are your civil rights? And so, so there's this debate about what is democracy and what is not. I suppose since the fall of communism in 1990 or whatever, um, the liberal view has, has won out in, in a sense. But, um, but, uh, are you saying that there? Uh, or can you elaborate? Because it, it seems like you're saying that um, there are different forms and manifestations of human rights. So let's take women's rights, and let's say in the Islamic world, for example, versus the West. Um, could you like elaborate on on this idea of human rights uh, in that context? Yes. Uh, when I said earlier on that, uh, since uh, my student days, I was critical of Sharia uh, as part of a movement, not by just by myself, is is that it is precisely the question of equality for women, equality for non-Muslims, freedom of religion, and all these values, which I do take to be integral to the universality of human rights. Uh, for me, the, the point is that human rights are the right to be human by on our own terms, but that cannot be uh, in violation of the fundamental human rights of others among ourselves as communities and societies as well as globally. Therefore, uh, for me, the I can, I'm critical of Sharia, but I have to be very clear. I'm critical of Sharia from an Islamic perspective, not from a liberal perspective. Mm. Could you elaborate on that a bit more? Yes, in that there is a methodology uh, which is transforming uh, our understanding of Sharia to shifting from some verses of the Quran to other verses of the Quran. Uh, and that is done through a particular methodology. There is a criteria of why we choose these verses uh, over others, and that in doing so, we are not being uh, sort of in contradiction with Muslim intellectual or, or philosophical history, because that process of choice, you see that the Quran is always understood by the human beings. There is no way that human beings can understand and integrate the Quran except through our own minds and experience. Definitely. Therefore, any understanding of Sharia is a human understanding of Sharia. It is not divine. It yeah. is a human understanding of what Muslims believe to be divine sources. So the question about equality for women, questions of freedom of religion and belief, also for me, there is a principle of what I call reciprocity, which is the, the notion of the golden rule, do unto others. That for me is the fundamental foundation of universality of human rights. Always and every single instance, treat other peoples as you would be treated, or we want to be treated. And that is the golden rule. And that rule is universal in all cultures, in all religious traditions. That therefore, for me, the measure is simply, if I do not treat women equally as I would demand to be treated as a man, then I, am, I cannot claim loyalty to the idea of universality of human rights. Of controversial aspect, you know, like in France in particular, has been the hijab 
uh, yes. and and the burqa and so forth. Um, how how does this? Um, so, from your perspective, um, how do you interpret that whole controversy? I don't see any difference between the practice of uh, France to restrict the rights of Muslim women to wear. Uh, the burqa, if you want to object, you have to object not simply because they are a symbol of uh, or symbol of uh, uh, an Islamic culture and or this or that. It has to be functional. That is, I cannot. Uh, I extend to I respect the rights of governments to regulate, for example, driver's licenses, so that the face of the person who's driving has to be seen by police officers, by other uh, people using the, the, the road. But uh, the right of women to walk on the pavement wearing a burqa, I don't see that violates uh, the uh, human rights of anybody else. Now, I don't see any difference. I see France and Iran are two sides of the same coin. In Iran, the government claims the right to regulate the women's dress. In France, the government claims to right, the right to regulate the rights of the dress of Muslim women. These are two sides of the same coin. I say that governments have nothing to do with how people choose to practice their own religion, so long as they do not violate a public interest that is a legitimate public interest to be shown, not simply because they offend the sensibility of republicanism in France. That is not good enough. Right. You know, there, there's another um, thing I, I want to ex I want you to explore for me as well. Um, you know, there is a a very strong argument and a strong idea that you know human rights themselves are uh, Western, right? So there's some people who say that as a criticism, right? So some people say, well. Human rights is just Western, and 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 it's Western imperialism, and it's a way of, of imposing Western values. So there's so there's some people that say that from a critical perspective. There are other people in the West itself that that are very proud of this, saying you know the West has you know always been the champion of individual rights and freedoms, and other cultures are you know collectivist and and. Uh, you know, I don't know, totalitarian, etc. You know, the, the kind of stereotypes they have um, there, and um, but but both, you know, both will agree that human rights are Western, and and many people have come to accept that argument. Uh, it doesn't seem that you do, and I'd like uh, for you to uh, explain your position and and offer a critique of those other two positions. Yes, uh, for me to say human rights are Western are historically false, actually, as we speak. I live in the United States. There's fundamental, ugly racism in the United States today, not, not history. Oh, on the whole, in my office here at home, because now I'm retired, my office is at home, I have a picture of a Muslim scholar who was kidnapped from West Africa and brought to the United States as a slave and sold and lived the rest of his life in the United States as a slave. Now, therefore, you know, also uh, just these are anecdotes. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights, so-called universal, was proclaimed in Paris, France 
1948, France continued to fight a vicious war against Algerian claimed right of self-determination. Uh, more than a million Algerians were killed by French forces in North Africa, in Algeria, until 1962, when Algerians finally won their independence. So we have here a situation where France claiming the rights of human, uh, the rights of the human and the citizen, so-called man, and look at that, the, the, the name itself, the rights of the human and citizen. They are not the rights of, uh, sorry, of man, not the rights of the human. And by saying citizen, you are limiting them to French citizens, not to humanity at large. Therefore, that's why imperialism has been perpetrated by France, by Britain, by the other European powers, and North American powers, the United States in particular, and still continue to be so. So therefore, the, the idea that we are a Western, with all due respect, as I said, is conceptually incoherent. Being Western means immediately that they are not universal. And therefore, to claim, and also it is an imperial claim that we civilized, you know, when I came to the United States and I came to Georgia to live in the United States, I came to, to teach at Emory Law School uh, for eight years. I just retired. When I came to Georgia, there were people in Georgia in prison for the crime of homosexuality. Now, sexual orientation is claimed to be a constitutionally fundamentally protected human right and or civil rights, at least in the United States. So here is the relativism and the historical inconsistency of the claim that human rights are Western or that Western define what human rights are. And as I say, racism, I live in Georgia. I live in the United States. I, I drive through the streets of, of Atlanta every day and I see homelessness, I see utter poverty, I see uh, uh, tremendous human rights violations and problems which are perpetrated daily without even a, an awareness that they have anything to do with human rights. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I really, I speak maybe too strongly. I don't think too strongly, but mm. I speak rather passionately, I should say, yeah. that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really, I'm almost 80, I'm 78 now. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I feel that um, there's very, we're running out of time. If we continue with our hypocrisy and double standards, we do not have claim the right to speak in the name of human rights, at least, anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and if we take it historically and philosophically, from my perspective, because I, I do not believe human rights per se are Western, maybe in the way it's the modern form of it, yes, it's been historically located there. But certainly when you go back to the laws of Hammurabi or, you know, Ashoka in India or, or in civilizations thousands of years, you know, before the West had, you know, advanced state systems there, um, you know, there were laws, you know, guaranteeing rights, you know, to, to all you know, subjects in, uh, and so forth. Mm -hmm. So the idea, this thing that, that it's somehow Western, and then even claiming the Greeks as being somehow 
you know, uh, in the same history as, as, you know, England or Scandinavia and divorcing it from the rest of the Mediterranean is, is really historically and philosophically untenable. But yeah, but but I I was I was curious as as to your perspective in that, <laughs> because I mean it, it it's really fascinating that you know this is not just an academic uh, topic for you. You know this is something you've been no. deeply involved in from the sixties. You know j- you know went to jail over. You know you've been to different countries. You've 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 had your activism with you know the main human rights organizations in the world. Uh, so, so this is this is actually you know quite a, a substantial and informed and important um, uh, rethinking of of human rights. So this is a fascinating background you have, and I can talk about this <laughs> for hours and hours. But um, let so I think we're just going to have to cut that there, and, and let's get into the specific details of this book. Uh, but I know this is something you've written about for your entire career, and it's been your life mission. So that itself is interesting. But so let, let's take a look at, at, at what you are talking about in decolonizing human rights. Presumably what you're talking about is the Western colonization of the concept of human rights and that uh, what you want to do is decolonize it. Is, is that the right way of thinking about it? Precisely, precisely. That I take the human rights concept as universal if it is not universal, then it is not human rights you are talking about. And therefore, but I do then in the book trace or, or try to briefly, as I think in struggle to make it brief this time, to make it readable, uh, that I try to demonstrate how the concept of universality has been colonized, has been hijacked by states and by Western imperial interests that, in fact, emptied the concept with fundamental value, which is the upholding the universal universal dignity of human beings everywhere on their own terms. You cannot protect and respect the dignity of any person on your terms. That is a contradiction. I say the person has to be the... the Point of preference for what his or her own dignity means. So uh, I say yes. I I am I'm, I'm struggling, uh, maybe as a summation of my own personal history, to contribute to liberating the idea or the concept of human rights from Western imperialism. Right. Right. Yeah, and and in in the process of that, I mean, be, besides the sort of philosophical critiques that that we've been talking about, uh, you know, you have very um, practical uh, difficulties that I would suppose emanates from the philosophical contradictions. Like, for instance, you speak about the myth of legal enforcement, you know, and the operational futility of attempting to protect human rights under international law. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yes. Uh, you start maybe with international law. We don't have, there is no international and it is not law. What we now take to be international law is in fact inter-European states, inter-European states relations universalized through colonialism. But it is not law because it is not enforceable. 
Right. Uh, and the, the, the critical quality of being law is to be enforceable and to be enforced in practice. If it is not, then we cannot take it seriously as, as law. And Actually, then you see that the different mm-hmm. standards that we see in how, for example, the United States. Mm-hmm. Let, me, let the United States and Iraq. That, that was going. What I was going to give is the the United States invasion of Iraq. But talk about what is going on in Palestine now as we speak, and tell me where is international law? Where is international humanitarian law? Yeah, regarding. Not only the current genocide of Palestinians in in Gaza, but the continued for decades occupation and violation of international Geneva Conventions and treatment of territory uh, of territories occupied territories, uh, the displacement of populations, the forceful confiscation of property, uh, the changing the physical. Look, a sort of uh, nature of of the territory that is occupied, so-called United Nations, by its own uh, law and, and rules, have declared this Western, the so-called Palestinian Western West Bank and uh, Gaza, to be occupied territories. The way they are being treated by Israel, while Israel has annexed by force. The next Jerusalem, for example, mm-hmm. and the United States, which claims to be a guardian of international legality, acknowledged and accepted. In fact, Trump, who was president at the time, just simply said, oh, yes, we acknowledge, we accept that. Who are you? What authority do you have to accept that? So so it's basically like the, the, the idea that there is no global human state and global human government that you know, and and so it, the laws cannot be enforced in that sense. Um, uh, and, and I said, um, and and so that you know, the, the West, which assumes a global leadership role, is always imposing. Well, it, it is enforcing human rights violations, or what selectively and what it considers human rights violation, on the formerly colonial territories and places in Africa, Asia, Latin America, but never really against. Uh, human rights violations in its in its own countries is, is that the type of um... yes there is that but also even in the so-called uh, uh, it is all selective and it is selective yes. to promote an imperial interests mm-hmm. uh, whether it is in Europe or I mean look at Ukraine what's going on now with mm-hmm. Russia uh, the, the idea that the veto power is integral to the UN Charter immediately defeats the claim of, uh, because it uh, it promotes the ability of the five permanent members Mm -hmm. and perpetuates the ability of any of the five permanent members to defy and defeat fundamental principles of so-called international law and protection of human rights. Right. Uh, And nobody can say anything. I mean, it, it goes on. Russia... Continues to 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 commit such atrocities in the Ukraine. Where is Ukraine now? Where where is it? What happened to it? I mean, what what happened overnight that suddenly we don't hear what's going on? Uh, and, and media, Western so-called liberal media, focuses exclusively on on perspectives and ideas and priorities that are not really truly 
committed to universal values or to international legality. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, there, there's something you, you mentioned there about um, uh, legally enforceable rights and human rights. Um, you, you mentioned in the book the distinction between civil rights and human rights. And, and for me, um, that also brings to mind that the, the debate between Malcolm X and Martin Luther King in the United States, where Martin Luther King was fighting for civil rights and, um, and Malcolm X was fighting for human rights. And uh, Malcolm X said, you, you don't go to the state that is the offender to ask them to correct themselves. You take them, you, you take the offender to the court. And, and you, you pointed to a similar contradiction in international law where states ratify the treaties for human rights, but those very states are also the violators of those human rights. And so there's, there are these inherent contradictions there. Do you want to um, elaborate on that? Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, sorry, that, that was a point that you also mentioned earlier on. That yes, for me, civil rights are uh, granted by the state and protected by the state, and only limited to the citizens of that states. Whereas human rights are the rights of the human, which uh, if we claim allegiance to those rights, we have to find ways in which we can promote those rights. Uh, on a global scale, everywhere to everybody, or for everybody. Now, legal protection is limited by by its being piecemeal, individualistic, slow, expensive, presupposing a very complex uh, judicial and legal system, whereby someone could identify the wrong, go to court, prove it over time, and eventually two, three years down the road, after all the appeals and this and that, may in fact get a remedy that ultimately will apply to that individual complainant alone. Whereas I feel that we have to seek strategies, political and economic and cultural, sociological, that will transform our consciousness so that we respect the rights of every human being without having to go to, go to court, without expecting legal remedy to, uh, to, to enforce those rights. Because uh, in, in our experience as African post-colonial societies, we do not have the infrastructure for legal protection. We do not have the material resources for so piecemeal, individual, case by case, over time, promote this and that right. And also that ultimately, I think even in, in Western so-called societies, that, that we find uh, that massive poverty, um, fundamental injustice, that goes totally unchecked by even civil rights within the state, let alone uh, uh, applying a universal standard of universal human rights. So when when we see states violating human rights, um, uh, you know, so, so the questions arise as to, well, who decides whether a human right has been violated or not? Uh, and then how does this get corrected? Um, uh, you know, and, and since the 90s in particular, you had, you know, the right to protect uh, the, you know, humanitarian interventions, um, these sorts of things. 
which many people have criticized quite rightly as, you know, covers for Western imperialism in terms of their selective nature, their hypocrisy, and their utter failure in achieving any sort of um, positive change when they go and intervene, like in Libya or Iraq or, or wherever they've gone. Um, so, so, you know, but, but this does remain a, a fundamental problem uh, because people's human rights uh, are violated and so how how is this to be corrected? What I seem to understand from your book and your argument is that um, it should be sort of an internal political process. Um, I, I, I'm not exactly quite clear. If, if you could elaborate on that for me, I'd appreciate that. Yes. Uh, uh, what I said about the state hijacking the idea of universal human rights is because they subjected this idea to state sovereignty and therefore you cannot enforce human rights across international borders without violating international law without uh, unless you have sanctioned by the un security council under chapter 7 for military intervention that is also clumsy and non-sustainable uh, armies do not protect human rights um, they are trained to kill and to destroy, not to protect and not to promote values and rights of that nature. For that, we have to look elsewhere. We look to our own cultural institutions, our social institutions, our moral ethical uh, frameworks that enable us to promote. Uh, in the book, I, I pro, um, advanced the idea of what I call cultural transformation and political mobilization. And for me, as a Muslim, as an African Muslim, I challenge uh, what I believe to be violations of fundamental human dignity and rights in my own society by trying to transform aspects of my own culture to promote equal human dignity for women, for other people who are not Muslims, for uh, freedom of religion, for dissident Muslims like myself, and so on. So that therefore, uh, by transforming internally with an internal frame of reference, with cultural and religious legitimacy, in my case as a Muslim, uh, these values, I am contributing to a global culture of human rights from my own perspective as an African Muslim. And I would call on all others, including especially Western liberals, who fail to really stand up to their claims of the values of commitment to human rights in their own societies. Mm -hmm. Where are they really regarding the rights of displaced and, um, and disenfranchised people of North America? I wouldn't say Americans. Yeah. Uh, people of this continent where I live now and probably who would consider maybe the Caribbean to be part of this uh, geopolitical region, uh, where, where are we as uh, so-called liberal uh, sort of committed to human rights values? I, I, I find it quite amazing in the United States how liberals or people who call themselves liberals have gone to quite totalitarian and illiberal means to preserve their political power in censorship yes. and 
You know, it, it, it's quite it's it's quite amazing how illiberal liberals are in the United States. I find. Yes. But uh, uh, in, yes. In going back to Sudan, you know, you know, I, so I'm interested. So in your own, let's see. So you were fighting, you know, for a more liberal, inclusive, uh, you know, let's say political culture um, and and society, and your movement. You know, the leader of your movement, if I if I heard you correctly, yes, or a group, or you know, or one of the leaders was executed. Um, your movement has been um, banned. And, yes, and, and so, so in a situation like that in Sudan, um, what you know, so so where you have, I I don't know, is it a junta in place right now? Is is it a military government there? Uh, unfortunately, yes, it's a military junta that has been in power since 1989. Right, that was overthrown by a popular revolution. So so so, so then how how so 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 where they suppress all dissent, they jail and kill people. Um, uh how you know so so the you know the western response you know the, the kind of unself-aware western response well oh well they'll they'll go in and save the day because they're the the champions of freedom so i we, we all know the problems with that as well but um but then the internal process has been stymied by the junta by by the government so so where you know where does that leave the process of, of advancing human rights, let's say in the Sudanese case in particular? Okay. Uh, obviously, um, I take a longer view of, of, of human struggle for human dignity and universal human rights. Uh, and we have to remember, we talked about the West, this, the West, that fascism is Western. Nazism is Western. Yeah. Now, Germany, which uh, now is considered to be one of the leaders of Western liberal uh, values uh, and democratic values was a fascist uh, perpetrated genocide in their own country of millions of people, mm -hmm. not only and, Jews. And Italy was the origin of fascism. And that time going to Spain. The West, this, the West that is really, I take it with, with, with really tremendous reservations. But the point is that if I take Global human development and civilizational evolution, not just simply in terms of Western this and liberal that, but in terms of human struggles, even in places like uh, which we now take to be examples of, of uh, Japan, for example, or Korea at some point, so-called China at some point, uh, still, uh, or in those, or Russia, Soviet Union, we see that. These situations are fluid and they shift over time. I do not take Sudan or Africa to be beyond redemption because of the recent history of those societies. Right. But we are simply going through stages. I, I have a book which I call African Constitutionalism and the Role of Islam, mm -hmm. in which I, I argue for what I call incremental constitutionalism. Yeah. That we are promoting human rights values, constitutional values from within our own cultures over time, incrementally. Okay. That we do not jump over space and time, but we have to build step by step and we have to build from the bottom up to be sustainable. Interesting. Uh, Interesting. In that sense, uh, 
in fact, I see the current crisis in Sudan where there is, in fact, a civil war at this point between two factions of the military uh, over the, as we have seen it in Libya for decades by now. Uh, I see all of these are part of the incremental process of going through, uh, and again, through all societies and their own histories. We see this, whether we talk about the French Revolution, we call That's it the French Revolution, or we talk about the American Revolution, we talk about the civil rights movement yeah. in the United States or elsewhere. There are even and England, so, a Magna Carta in 12. <laughs> but it takes time, yeah. it takes time. And, 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 and if you look, when did women have the right to vote in the United Kingdom? Mm-hmm. In the 1920s, yeah. mm-hmm. as a result of a very long and protracted struggle, yeah. when did universal suffrage prevail in the United Kingdom, which now claims to be, or France, yeah. which now claim to be the champions of democratic values everywhere? Exactly. So over time, I don't judge these societies as backward or, or are regressive, but I acknowledge that it's a question of context, of a question of progressive development over time, building values, building institutions, building a culture that promotes these values over time. Very. You know, um, there's one phrase um, that you had in the book too, which was intriguing, um, that maybe I'd like you to explain a little more, where you just talked about, uh, you said, that the human rights project may completely fail. And indeed, I see indications of that already. So you, you, you had said that in your book. So what did you mean by that? Uh, by, by that, I mean the so-called liberal human rights project. Ah, okay. The, the state-centric ah. human rights project. Okay. But, but because in the book I tried to have, of course, unfortunately, if I go back to read or to rewrite, I, I would be maybe be very um, more clear and right. Mm-hmm. I in my first, uh, my point is that I'm committed to universal human rights. I see that so-called state-centric, uh, liberal notion of what these rights are and how they are to be protected as defeating mm-hmm. the purpose of universality of human rights. And I try to promote universality through what I call cultural transformation and political mobilization for each society on its own terms. Over time, we will have, uh, without violating the fundamental right to self-determination of societies, but for each society to struggle with its own values and its own cultural inhibitions that that, violate the fundamental dignity of all human beings and to promote equal rights and so on. For me, as a Sudanese Muslim, uh, I see the current uh, struggle as part of a broader struggle that we will prevail. As in all societies, there have been times when uh, it looked very, really um, doubtful, uh, but has come to Look at the civil rights movement in Mexico, in the United States, for example, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. But also, I would like to endorse very much the Malcolm X perspective. And I think, what, I mean, Dr. King himself came to realize towards the end of his life that his failure to fundamentally challenge 
economic and social rights injustice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that's the, the, for example, the question of the the Memphis, I mean, why he was there when, when he was assassinated. That's right. Was promoting the rights of workers to uh, to struggle for the better pay and better conditions. Uh, that is an aspect of the civil rights movement that must be criticized by civil rights advocates in the United States to promote economic and social rights as well as civil and political rights. Well, I mean, you know, your your view and perspective really resonate strongly with me, you know, and uh, and I think it's uh, quite, you know, it's quite an important, uh, you know, statement uh, that that you make here and an argument. Um, we're we're getting to the end of our interview here, and so I just want to ask you is if there's any final message that you'd like to leave with our listeners. Yes, uh, I'm grateful, by the way, Ken, for for the opportunity and for really the the, the honor you did me by reading the book uh, the book carefully, and I saw that in in our conversation now. Uh, I would plead with everybody who can and have access to to read this book and to critique what I'm saying, because I, I'm looking for ways of improving my argument, my position, clarify, and to correct. Uh, absolutely, I have shifted, as I said, from a very narrow liberal perspective to what I believe now to be a more truly universalist view of human rights. But I, I am sure that there are ways in which people can guide me, correct me, and and uh, or if they join me to co- continue the struggle to promote these values uh, and, uh, and this critique uh, in our societies. Well, that's quite remarkable. I, I just I think that message itself is is quite amazing. I want to thank you so much for this interview. It's been very informative and enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. So once again, the book is Decolonizing Human Rights, and we've been speaking to the author, uh, Abdullahi, let me get the uh, your full name here, uh, Abdullahi Ahmed Annaim. Uh, I want to thank you for listening, uh, to our listeners, for listening to this interview, and I want to thank Abdullahi for this really engaging interview. Thank you, Rich. Thank you, Kirk. Okay. Bye for now. Thank you. Bye-bye. <laughs>